You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to our celebrity Strong Towns web broadcast. And this month, uh, we have as our celebrity, uh, a guy who is a celebrity, uh, particularly in the, uh, in the Strong Towns field, uh, a small developer, a really cool guy, <laughs> and uh, someone I'm really proud to have with us today, uh, all the way from Dallas, Texas, Derek Avery. Derek, welcome to uh, welcome to uh, Strong Towns. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh my gosh. I- I'm just tickled pink when you uh, said that you'd agree to do this. Your organization, your business is called Core Holdings. It's C-O-I-R Holdings. And people can find you at coreholdings.com. You do uh, small... You, you, I, th- I think you describe yourself as a small developer. Um you you do uh, incremental development along the lines of a lot of what we talk about here at Strong Towns. Can you? I'd like people to know how you got into this business. What 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 prompted you to become a developer and particularly to do it the way that you do it? Oh, great! I mean that that's a interesting question, and a lot of times even it feels odd being called a developer because I don't always feel. I'm part of that same community because sometimes people's connotation with the word developer doesn't equate to what my wife and I do. But um, one of the reasons I got into development is because growing up, I grew up in a neighborhood. I grew up in Houston, a neighborhood called Third Ward. And then we ended up moving to a neighborhood called A-Leaf. And Third Ward was next to a neighborhood that got gentrified that's unrecognizable now, um, even the name is gone. You know, Fourth Ward, it used to be called Fourth Ward, now it's called Midtown. And I watched it and I watched development happen the wrong way, big, giant, top-down, you know, developments, a lot of corruption at the city level. And my mentors at my church were in real estate and one of them was a developer. And so I kind of got a firsthand look into kind of a peek behind the veil, so to speak, of development. And so it inspired me. Also, Greenwood, Tulsa is the thing that I always go back to. I think about in 1921 that a town, an all-Black town, was able to be completely self-sufficient. And I feel like it's past the year 2000. And so if if a small town and small developers got together in 1921, Surely, you know, I could grow up and do that. So this is what I've always wanted to do. Even with doing other things, this was the thing that I always wanted to come back to was uh, development. I want to uh, let the people who are listening know we got a couple dozen uh, plus uh, participants. Uh, This isn't ask me anything. I've got a few questions more for Derek that I want to go through. Uh, but sure. we're going to eventually get to you. So if you've got a question, there's a little Q&A button. On my screen, it's on the bottom. I think on some people's screens, it winds up to be on the left or the right. If you've got a question for Derek, you've got a question that you'd like to have him answer, go ahead and, and, and put it in the Q&A, and uh, I will get to it here in a little bit. Um, Derek, I, I wanna, one of the things that you have been outspoken about is the idea of revitalization without gentrification. Uh, gentrification is one of these things that uh, we, we talk a lot about. And for me, it, it, oftentimes it seems like a call to neglect a neighborhood or, or, or not make investments in a neighborhood. It, it's kind of like an all or nothing prospect. We're either gonna come in and completely transform a neighborhood overnight and, and displace the people who are there or we're going to ignore the neighborhood and have it just go through decline. You have laid out a third way, a, a third approach. Can you talk a little bit about revitalization without gentrification? And, and, and I think my question is really along the lines of 
how is this not just a slogan by a developer, but actually <laughs> something that you you live and have seen uh, actually be a be a viable third way? Absolutely, I really appreciate you asking that because I was in a meeting yesterday um, with Heather Way, who does a lot of research at the University of Texas on gentrification, and a gentleman asked a question, and it's one of those things, some people say it's semantics, but I think that words mean things. So the gentleman said, well, gentrification is good. And whenever someone says that, I always chuckle a little bit now. I used to get irritated, sure. but I, I, I chuckle now because I understand what they're trying to say, but I also disagree with it because when I hear the word gentrification, it has a completely negative connotation. It's when you displace people and when you do not preserve the history. So for me, revitalization is what everyone wants. When you go to a neighborhood that's been this disinvested, the people there don't want it to stay that way. They want investment. And clearly, that's what everyone is asking for. But they don't want to be displaced and not included in, in that um, revitalization and in that investment. So for us, what we do specifically is we're a part of the community. We don't go in there and just say, you know what, we know everything. We're going to tell you guys what we're going to do and deal with it. And if you stay cool, if you go, you know, that's even better. But what we do is we ingrain ourselves into the community. Um, I stand at job sites on purpose because I want people because people always walk up and they ask questions, but I always talk to the neighbors first. That's, um, you know, my wife and I, that's what we go do. We go knock on the doors and say, hey, we're looking to do something over here. What are the needs here? What, what's the history that we don't know? Because there are a lot of things that you're only going to get from oral history in those neighborhoods. And so one of the things that we also do is try to make sure that we honor the history in an area because that is extremely important. And the history can be from the architecture all the way to the art in that particular neighborhood. And we hire people locally. Um, I'll, I'll give a quick story about a project that we're doing right now. We started building and I was standing outside and a gentleman approached me and said, hey, you know, I'm looking for the general contractor. Can you help me get in contact with them? And I said, um, sure. You know, what do, what do you need? And so he was assuming that, I, you know, that I was there building. <laughs> that was not you, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so when I told him that I was the developer, he had no idea what that even actually meant. Sure. And so I told him, I said, well, you know, we pulled together this whole deal, the financing, and we're managing the construction. And with that being said, he asked for a job. Cool. And, and I said, you know, well, you know, what skill sets do you have? He said, look, I can learn anything. I can clean. I can do these sorts of things. So we hired him. He showed himself to be a great worker. He brought six other guys from the neighborhood a week later and said, hey, these guys are just like me. They need work. We're from the neighborhood. We're happy that you're here and including us. And so when it comes to revitalization, one of the other things that they asked for were amenities. And so the argument that um, I used to get into with the city and with other folks is that you have to have rooftops because there was a lot of vacant land a lot of times in neighborhoods um, of this caliber and houses that have been abandoned. So the argument is that there aren't enough rooftops to support uh, commercial enterprise. But a lot of times people are living multiple families to a house anyway, even though we have single families owning. But I know, of course, that's a different subject we'll get to, I'm sure. But the point of it is we're working on also bringing a grocery store um, to that area because that was the biggest complaint that they would like to walk to the grocery store because they walk to the corner store, spend three times as much and, you know, buy things that aren't, that aren't healthy. So when we're revitalizing neighborhoods, it's not just building property. It's not just seeing if the deal pencils, it's actually breathing life 
back into the community and revitalizing it to the glory that it was years ago. I have a lot of technical questions for you, but, but you just sure. said, a, you, but you just said a couple of things that want, make me want to get philosophical with you for a couple minutes. Um, sure. Uh, you, you, you talk about the guy who showed up and wanted the job and, uh, and said like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I maybe don't have like a flashy resume, uh, but I got, you know, I'm willing to show up every day and work. Talk a little bit about the experience of that person wanting to be a carpenter with a DR Horton or a Centex or a, you know, one of the big contracting companies or what have you who are out doing these, you know, big developments. And, and those places have the 401k and they got the insurance plan. And on, on paper, that looks like a great, you know, that looks like a great deal for everybody. Talk a little bit about that person right. and, and how that person works with someone like you and, and what that really means in a, a struggling neighborhood for the, the people who are there. Well, it creates opportunity in that particular neighborhood because some of those other builders, they're across town and that creates a transportation issue because this particular gentleman didn't have a car. So if there was a job that was 30 minutes or 45 minutes away with one of those larger builders, he wouldn't have been able to get it. And I'm not sure if he would have even been given the opportunity um, considering he had a limited resume. So for me, and for my wife, what we thought about was, okay, we have to be patient with people because we're meeting people where they are. And so sometimes the skill sets are mismatched, but sometimes there are people there that have incredible skills that just haven't been given the opportunity. So he was one of those guys. One of the guys on his crew is actually an HVAC tech who just couldn't find any opportunities because you know, he needed help with soft skills. He needed help with learning how to submit bids and things like that. So we helped walk, we helped walk him through doing that. And then of course he's getting our HVAC jobs and he was just a crew member for the guy that only knew how to clean up. So a lot of times there are people with talent there. They just don't know how to access the networks and we're trying to build that bridge. We want to help train them so that they can work with us, get in and start their own businesses and learn how to do deals. Maybe they go to a Lennar or a DR Horton as they grow with us later to do deals with them as long as they still work with us or they create an opportunity for someone else. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on something a little bit because I wanna sure. I, I wanna I wanna give you a chance to respond to this because I, I think this is something that I hear in other places. Um so, uh, you know, we, we, you, you brought up that neighborhood in Tulsa and I apologize. I, I know I've heard you talk about it before and I can't remember the exact name of it. Greenwood. Greenwood. Okay. I, I, I think that a certain uh, number of people without knowing, without hearing your story, without hearing something like this would say, oh yeah, developers, they would just go into a poor neighborhood like this and, and, and exploit people that are there. Uh, you know, a developer, Derek Avery, we don't know who you are. You're just some developer. You're going to pay people less and, and make them work longer hours and, and not be safe. What, talk a little bit about, I, I, I feel like this is a really important thing. It wasn't what I, I started out thinking we'd chat about, but, but there's, a, there's a certain, uh, you know, giving people a shot kind of thing that can be a little bit messy at times. As someone who runs a business, as someone who's ultimately responsible for building homes and paying off loans and, and doing the really important work you do, how, what is the role of giving people a shot in revitalizing a neighborhood? And, and how do we enable you to take risks on people uh, when we know that there are other people maybe who, who, who wouldn't be the upstanding Derek Avery person? Sure. That's, that's a good one. Well, to me, it's not taking a risk as opposed to with people in this neighborhood versus someone else. Because if you hire a subcontractor from anywhere, a lot of times you have to work with them first before you can understand how they work. And as far as, as, far as exploitation, 
the way we look at it, for us, we know that, you know, we believe we want people to make a living wage. But at the same time, if another developer came in and, and started trying to exploit people, they will quickly leave. We build long-term relationships. So if a developer came in and started just hiring people and letting them go, they wouldn't, the community would push back very quickly. And so I think that sometimes people don't realize how tight-knit a community is and how word gets out very quickly. So for us, our reputation is all that we have. And so that's why we've been able to be successful. But another developer, if they came in behind us or if they went to another neighborhood and tried to use this model but do it improperly, the community would quickly word would get around and so people would stop going for those jobs. They would say, well, I'd you know, rather do what I was doing before than to deal with these folks. I, I hear you saying there's a certain like cult, cultural social pressure when you work at the level of intimacy that you're at, that in a sense, like polices a lot of the things that maybe we would otherwise feel like we got to have laws about and inspectors about and that kind of thing. Right. Tell me how this relates to the, the Tulsa neighborhood, Greenwood, because I, I, there's this, and I don't want to be nostalgic, overly so on my part. I, there, was a, there was a Krugman column a couple of weeks ago that talked about we need rural cities and small towns to be at least 50,000 to 80,000 people, or they just don't have the critical mass to, to be a place. And that was my response, too. We just to kind of giggle at this. You know, we used to have neighborhoods that were a couple thousand people that were, you know, very viable places. Talk to me a little bit about your vision for what a neighborhood is and, and can be. And particularly, I think, drawing on that Greenwood, like, why is that, a, why is that an inspiration for you in terms of, like, this is what I could build or this is what I could be part of building? Sure. Well, Green, Greenwood, and I hope people Google it because it's not something that's really that's taught in school. Um, Greenwood Tulsa in 1921 and prior to that was an all-black town in Oklahoma, all-black neighborhood <coughs> that was built by small developers because there were no opportunities elsewhere. So they pooled their money. And this is interesting. This is in, you know, in the early teens and 20s, you know, African-Americans pooling their money. And so you can think how difficult that was at that time, but they did it. And this, excuse me, this was a very small town, but they built it incrementally. But they were very successful because they didn't overspend on things that didn't make sense. They didn't do big vanity projects. They did projects based on what people needed in that neighborhood. And for me, I look at communities, you look at rural, this was a rural community initially that turned into a town. And so I look at some of the sufferings that are happening in rural neighborhoods, no matter what the color or racial makeup of the neighborhood, it's, it's all kind of the same. People can come together and do these things. You don't need 80,000 people to make a successful town if you don't overspend on infrastructure. If you go in with that same mindset that they did in Greenwood, then you can actually have a successful neighborhood without, you know, begging you know, large corporations to come in to hire people. The jobs are created there. And that's what, that's my inspiration for going to these neighborhoods because there's a lot of talent right there. There's a lot of opportunity right there, particularly with infill because the infrastructure is already there. You're usually close to downtown or some, or the central business district of most cities. And usually those areas need a lot of reinvestment but you have things that are already there that you can build on. So the idea that if you look at a rural town, if you don't try to make, create a massive development that artificially grows that town and you let it grow incrementally, then I think that the town will actually last longer and be more successful. When you think of, Paul, I, I, I know I'm getting philosophical on you, but I'm enjoying, sure. I, I'm really appreciating your answers. Um, I think of like our efforts in the early 2000s to expand home ownership 
And it was actually a, a, an effort to uh, help people who were poor and generally disenfranchised uh, get into homes and, and get lower down payments and uh, less money down and less mortgage insurance. And what we're talking about here is subprime mortgages. Um, to me, that seemed like it was almost federally engineered predatory, you know, predatory kind of uh, lending uh, at the local level. How, how is your vision different than that? I mean, you, you're getting people into homes. You're getting people into ownership. You're getting people into businesses. Why is it important to do it incrementally as opposed to, you know, I'll come in with the, the Wall Street money and the big capital and, uh, and do it that way? Because that way is not sustainable. That way it, it inflates prices. It causes massive greed. The way their, their hearts were in the right place with trying to get more people in houses because we understand that that's you know, a wealth generating deal for most people and that's kind of how that view is. But it always, if something is an asset, then it becomes something that greed um, takes over. I remember going to the ULI conference, I spoke at in, in February, and one of the classes was affordable housing as an asset class. And so that made me think of what you just mentioned. And if you look <laughs> at it from a greed perspective, that means the big money is coming in. That means you know, there's a lot of international investors. The Wall Street guys are getting excited about affordable housing because it's a problem. Well, in my mind, that makes me think, okay, they're going to do massive projects. They're going to over leverage and it's just going to create another bubble. And so if we don't create bubbles, if we build incrementally, then we create things that are sustainable. We don't create short term, you know, booms that aren't sustainable and that's that's what I see and that's what makes me uncomfortable because I watched that it was exciting seeing people get houses but when you start packaging loans you know packaging subprime loans and then selling them as triple a you know on the market that doesn't even make sense right so you can help people get into a house you can use those assistance programs because you do want to get your teachers, your firefighters, your, your local community people who are working there. You want them living in your neighborhood. So why not get those people in houses? But the other thing is um, if you build incrementally, those people will stay in those houses. They won't lose them. Right, right. We're starting to get some questions in. And I want to get to those in a sec. I still feel like I'm uh, I'm going to hog you a little bit here selfishly. I have <laughs> I have more questions that I have, but I promise you, if you if you enter some questions in, I will try to get to try to get to them. Um, I, I no want problem. you to I want you to walk us through the technical part of this. Um, okay. I would like to be a developer. I'm going to a neighborhood. Uh, it's a neighborhood that I, I I care about. I know about. Maybe it's a neighborhood that is is struggling and needs some revitalization. How do I identify what a good project is? How, walk me through the steps that you, Derek Avery, take to say this is a good project. Okay, perfect. So for me, um, can you still hear me? Hear oh yeah, yeah, you're good. You're in Kevin Shepard's office in Dallas. So are they uh, are they harassing you there? Or? <laughs> they tried to I had to get a charger because I was on 10% and I said uh oh oh no I can't, <laughs> I can't uh, lose a connection in the middle of this this would be that would be terrible that would be sad uh, so you're, you're good now you charged, you're charging up I'm good to go and then my allergies started doing weird things so my apologies my wife <laughs> brought some tissues so you're there good. are a lot of things going on in the background but <laughs> I identifying a good project one I like to go I like to go straight to the numbers because I want to dispel some things and I know some people will disagree with me um, because a lot of people look at deals and say that there's no way that they will pencil in neighborhoods like these because you don't have the appraisals or you don't have the comps and so a lot of a lot of people ask okay well what's how do you make the first deal happen 
So the first deal is a bootstrap deal. You have to grind it out. You have to have grit. You have to figure it, figure it out, find people to partner with. I think that's the best thing to do. Find someone with expertise in, in an area, particularly in building, because if you're not, if you don't understand how to manage construction, just jumping out there and doing it, you'll make a lot of mistakes that will cost you dearly. Um, same thing with land acquisition. Make sure you understand that market. So for me personally and for my wife, we look for areas that are close to the central business district. Um, and usually it's pretty easy. Um, for me, I always drive to Martin Luther King Jr. Street because almost in every city you go to, it's going to be somewhere near the central business district. Sure. So that's my particular strategy. And, you know, honestly, and I don't mind sharing it because I want other people to, to copy it and do it. I don't feel like someone is going to steal something from me if they go start developing off MLK, but that's, that's what we do. And then from there, we look at, okay, what will make the most impact over here? What type of product, what type of things are lacking in this neighborhood? Like I, like I mentioned before, we go speak to people and say, hey, what, what's needed here? And so with us, we don't make that decision initially. So then once we understand the need, we've assessed that. And then now we understand the market now, okay, we need to put a house here that shows that this area is valuable. So a lot of times people don't understand that initial project may not look like the area may not be priced like the area but it's for a particular strategy to show that there's value and people want to move there because from our research it's usually people who are from that area that want to move back but they just want a product that's comparable to what they could get somewhere else sure. and then they also want the amenities and then people want houses restored the historic houses they want those houses restored to what they looked like when that area was thriving. And so for us, that's what we do. So we'll find, usually it's a va it's vacant lots and we'll go put up a single family, you know, we'll make it look great. We'll invite people as we're building, you know, have people come walk through it and see the quality. And then what we do is we come back and build stuff that's affordable and say that this is accessible to you. So, and then financially, you know, we bootstrapped the first deals. We partnered up with people. We said, okay, we just need to get this done. We're okay if we only make a small profit, but we need to stay in business, obviously, but we need to get this on the ground. So the first few projects were purely bootstrapped. Then after that, people started approaching us with deals. And so now it's more of, okay, now we just have to review them and make sure they make sense. Right, right. Let me go to a question uh, that was submitted. Joe Pliss uh, is asking, first of all, he says, love what the Averys are doing. And I, maybe I'll just pause here and say, you've mentioned your wife a couple times. I was fortunate enough to meet your wife. The brains of the operation? I know she's the looks of the operation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> tell, me about the role of the, tell me about the role of that partnership. Oh, it's, it's great. It's great. A lot of people can't work with their spouses. And, you know, sometimes people look at us and say, you know, relationship goals. Let's not do that. We're, we're, we're regular. We get in arguments just like anyone else. It's rough working with people. I'm, I'm type B, she type, she's type A. But it actually, when we come together, it makes things really smooth, even though if it has to be rough for us for a couple of days. Sure. If we balance each other out. Right. Because she she is very, very, very smart, very opinionated. But what it does is it makes sure that neither one of us goes overboard with our or falling in love with our own ideas. And so partnering up with someone that understands you, I mean, it's been it's it's wonderful. So when we look at deals, she's very politically engaged, very politically connected. So in development you understand that that is a very political game and so with her connections in that world 
that really makes it invaluable for what we're doing because she's the, you know, if you look at her role, she's the chief um, community, I mean, chief relations officer. And so basically that's bringing all those community pieces together, you know, and that's the political and the local communities. So. Sure. Sure. I, I've, I've, I've heard John Anderson say that before that the, the biggest danger you have is falling in love with your own project. Um, Absolutely. And so I, I think, yeah, yeah. Having a team, having someone, I think that's the case in, in life. Any, anytime you're an entrepreneur, that's the case, right? Um, yes, let me ask you, let me ask you this question that Joe had. He, he says, how do we find uh, and encourage community developers like the Avery's in our small town? Are there things town should do to encourage people to develop in this way? Um, if, if let's take my town of Brainerd where we're hurting. I mean, we would, Derek, if I could somehow get you to move to Brainerd, <laughs> I know it's not your passion, but and you, it might be a little cold for you, but boy, I would, I would love to have you here. Um, if I can't get you here, how do I grow my own, Derek Avery and Avery's uh, development coin, you know, coin, coin holding core holdings. How do I, how do I grow that here? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And I, and I'm so thankful that he asked because we really like answering that question because a lot of times people fall in love with the idea of someone coming from somewhere else to solve a problem that people have the tools to solve themselves. And so for us, we just like to be able to encourage people that they can do this. So how do you find people that want to do this? You really have to go to the people who have been doing things for 10, 20, 30 years that just need to connect. That's the thing that we've, we've seen. A lot of people work in silos. When we started doing work in south dallas and in southern dallas that's the first thing that we noticed because we're from both of us are from houston and when we moved to dallas we didn't quite understand the landscape until we were here for a couple of years we just thought okay there's 10 people working on the same thing but they never speak to each other and i see that in a lot of towns you'll have five different people working on solving a problem but a lot of times, I don't know if it's ego or if it's just they don't know each other or just the nature of you know, the social makeup of that town. But if there can be some type of catalyst, some type of person to pull those folks together, you would hope that it would be the city council person or whoever you know is in local government. But I know that a lot of times they're tied up in red tape. But the other side of it is, okay, somebody needs to bring these pieces together and say, okay, we're going to leave the egos at the door like Quincy Jones did when they did um, We Are the World. You know, he had all those celebrities in there and said, look, we're going to do this project, but everyone has to leave their ego at the door. And so they completed that project. That, I mean, that song raised, you know, millions of dollars. And so that's what I think of with neighborhoods. If we go in and say, look, Let's put all the ego to the side. Let's put who gets the recognition to the side and encourage. Let's solve problem one, two, and three for this community and let's assign it. And it doesn't matter who gets the credit because the community is going to benefit from it. And that's the best answer that I have for that because I understand that it's tough. If you are, um, we have a lot of people in strong towns who uh, are, are technical professionals in government, a lot of people who are running for office and want to be involved politically, and, and a lot of uh, neighborhood activists who probably will never be small developers, even though I, I, I've started to, I've learned from you, from, from John, from Monty, and other people that, that they could be if they, if they, if they put their mind to it. Um, sure. What would you say to the person not in the arena, in a sense, uh, as a way to kind of make room for what you do? What, what kind of things should they be supporting in the environment around your work that would make your work easy? And, and let me say this in a different way. When you're looking at a neighborhood to develop or a neighborhood to work in, um, 
what are the, like the community characteristics that would say, Derek Avery, come here, like this place is ready for you? I mean, that, that, the one thing that I would love to see if community activists and people who are in government as far as elected officials and then also city staff, if they can start working together to figure out how to create zoning policies first, that would be, that would be one of my biggest complaints that makes sense for that neighborhood. Because if you look at, if you tie your current zoning with what your community needs and those things, if you try to tie those things and they don't line up, then you're not going to ever have someone show up or someone there be able to do things because you're constantly fighting, you know, frivolous, you know, requirements or you're constantly fighting, you know, someone not understanding things. But if those folks are on the same page and say, look, we're ready for development. We have land set aside. We have affordability set aside, but we also want investment, you know, in some, you know, commercial corridors and things like that. And we want to encourage incremental development. I would say economic development department, council people and activists get together so that everyone understands how these things work together and encourage small businesses to thrive in that area. I mean, make policy that makes it easy to come in or people who are there to expand their businesses. That, that's one of the, that would be one of my suggestions. Um, if it, it's the silo thing, it, it really, I know I keep harping on it, yeah, yeah. but I, I feel like that's one of the bigger things. If you can get the nonprofit community, you can get the government sector and then you get the private sector with the community all together, creating an environment that makes it simple to build good buildings that people are asking for, I think that that sets the tone and people will, will flock to want to do business there and want to live there. It, it seems like a lot of times when a neighborhood is experiencing distress, uh, whether it's in the early stages of that or the advanced stages of that, one of our responses as public officials or as, as people, you know, responsible for this is to add more regulation. Uh, and, and, and create higher standards. You just laughed at that. Tell me why that's the, that's the wrong answer. Well, because I know where it comes from. You know, I know where it comes from because I'm dealing with a situation like that because the neighborhood wasn't educated in how zoning works and they didn't have any developers that actually cared about the neighborhood. So they created more regulations to keep out developers completely and that's what i see happen because development scares people i mean when you say someone wants to come develop in a neighborhood that hasn't been developed it scares people and rightfully so because why would you trust an outside developer anyway because if you look at the history around you you see neighborhoods that have been gentrified and people have been displaced then of course, anytime you see someone coming to your neighborhood, you're going to be leery. And that's how you get people pushing policy that is actually detrimental to the neighborhood. So over-regulating does not solve the problem. I don't, I, and I won't say completely relaxing all regulations solves the problem, but I will say if you go into it with common sense that and you understand what you need. And these departments start educating the community and even the departments educating themselves on how things work because you'll get someone that's in the zoning department, they only understand zoning. They don't understand economic development. So if those two things aren't linked or they don't understand transportation or how those things are linked, if you don't have people who understand multi-disciplines then how are you ever going to have a cohesive uh, neighborhood? And if the neighborhood activists aren't being, you know, aren't privy to some of this information on how it can help, then you'll get TIFs like, you know, tax incremental financing zones that are there for 20 years and, don't, and there's no projects going on. Right, right. And I've seen that happen.
all, all, we're, we're, we're so afraid of something happening that we prevent anything from happening. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Nathan has a question for you. And this one kind of excites me. I was actually hoping we would get this one. Uh, he's, Nathan says, I'm looking for a career change to contribute to building strong towns. Uh, how do I become an incremental developer in my local city without any experience in real estate or construction? Great question. I don't like to sugarcoat things. I like to be very blunt and honest. It's hard, but you can do it. So what I would say is figure out what is your skill set, what is your talent that you can bring to the table. And, it, and your only talent may be passion. But if you take that passion and you start researching, okay, what does my community need? What kind of project would best fill this need? And find someone to partner with. Find a capital partner and find a building partner and run that deal by find an attorney that you trust and make sure that they are involved intimately in that deal and run it by run it by them and and do it you know don't don't create the paralysis of analysis because i see that happen a lot of times do something small do something small first but get those partners so that you mitigate that risk and literally you can build one house or build one duplex and now you're a developer because you've been through that experience and let's say you decide okay i want to do a mixed use next well now you have that exercise of putting together a deal even though it's a small deal you can take those same principles you can take the finance principles you can take the legal principles of how you created that deal and you can do it again and you can always scale if if need be but starting small is the first thing that i will say and partnering up with people who already know what they're doing i think one of the things that scares people the most or the thing that i run into the most is is not necessarily boy i don't know how to put up a stud wall or i don't know how to you know get a get a concrete mason in to help with this it's where do we find the money and sure. it's this fear of that and and i know you know you regularly fly out to New York and meet with people on Wall Street and, you know, go through the, all that. You're well connected that way. I mean, that's what you have to do to be a developer, right? You've got to have six figure, uh, you know, you, you, you've got to have these seven, eight figure deals that you're doing. Just talk to the REITs and get all the, the centralized finance. No, that's not what you do. Not even close. All right. Walk, walk, us, walk us through that because I do think that's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thought. And I want you to respond to this too. There's a thought that all developers are rich. And if they're not rich, they're connected to rich people. And if they're not rich or connected to rich, rich people, they're, they're like shysters. They're hucksters. They're, they're, they're trying to, they're smooth operators. I know, I know you. I know a lot of people who do exactly what you do. They're none of those things. Talk about that because I think it scares people because they don't get the financing part. Sure. And, and that's the hardest part. That's the most common question. And let me, let me answer a couple of questions real quick first. One, I've only been to New York once and I went to Rochester. So I haven't even been to New York <laughs> City yet. So no uh, Wall Street connections. <laughs> so no, no, <laughs> no, no Wall Street connections. Um, I'm, I'm not rich, you know, I wasn't, you know, I'm not a trust fund child. Um, I worked really, really hard, but, you know, we didn't start with anything. You know, we started with, you know, having knowledge. I've been in the real estate industry for a long time, but the advantage that that gave me was knowledge, but to be perfectly an experience, I will say that. And, you know, as a I've been a tax consultant, a property tax consultant for the last seven years. So I've seen the numbers, but all I'm saying is someone can literally go read for six months and learn the ins and outs of how to put together a good deal. Because for me, it's finding someone who is interested in your area. There are people 
who have money, um, even small amounts, when you bring those, when you bring that together, creates, you know, the ability to do a deal. If you're trying to do a deal that's two hundred thousand, you can find two hundred thousand dollars to do a deal. It's easy for me to say that right now, but if you sit down and study and you put together a deal that makes sense, you can go. You may go to a bank and they're going to say no. But a lot of times if you ask that banker, okay, do you know anyone personally who is interested in a deal like this? They will always have someone that they can mention. And then the ability from there is to sell the deal to someone. And I, and I, I firmly believe we're always within a couple of degrees separation from being able to fund anything. So even if you have no Wall Street connections, no money, there's someone in your town that will invest. And now we have technology. We have things like small change. Um, I consulted on a project in Connecticut. Um, you know, a friend of mine, Kim Bianca, put a deal on small change and raised the money to acquire. She didn't have any capital up front, but she researched the deal. She was diligent on putting the numbers together and listed it on small change and she's getting funded now so that answers the question of okay if i don't have money if i don't have connections you you have to create those um you know so one i'm not rich i'm not wall street connected you know my wife and i just decided okay we're gonna go at this 100 percent. this is our passion we want to do this and we did it. We put in the time full time to make it happen. And I think that's what, what does it. And you have to be okay with hearing no. You know, hearing no and accepting that criticism. No one likes criticism. No matter what anyone says, it's uncomfortable. It feels bad. But if it's feedback that can improve you trying to reach your goal, then you take that feedback. If you need to change some things in your presentation, then you change it and you submit it to whoever you can find that has the ability to fund the deal. Uh, I'm gonna go back to a question from Joe in Connecticut. Um, he is asking, how do you create positive momentum with development without triggering an increase in property evaluations? And, and I'm gonna, this is the, uh, you know, revitalization without gentrification, but I, I wanna add on to that. Um, you know, Derek, you go into a neighborhood, you start small with the bootstrap project, you bring in capital, you start projects start coming to you after that, you build some momentum. And now all of a sudden, the big players are starting to see like, you know, things are going well there. How do you? Um, what's what's the what's what's that, you know, that perfect sweet spot, where you really are empowering people in a neighborhood and, and, and growing it incrementally versus you cross over and now you're just going to get flooded with the outside people who are, are just trying to exploit the momentum that, that's been created. It, is there a way to deal with that? Yes. So one of the things that <clears throat> I know I've mentioned a couple of times about being a property tax consultant, and that's that part's very important because every – Every time we do a project, when we talk to the neighbors, we know that they're going to get an increase in their property taxes. And that's usually uh, where gentrification actually starts. Because if someone, if there's no comps in the area and we're able to convince the appraiser to appraise it to the value that we've built the house at, then they go through and they say, well, we need to raise the land table in that area. And so my strategy and my wife's strategy is to go into the appraisal district, represent the neighbors and say, listen, these are not comparables to these houses. We need to keep these where they are. And raising the land table will only create massive gentrification. So what we ask them to do is to make sure they're comparing apples to apples. And because there are no other apples, appraise this property on its merits and leave the other properties where they are until each individual property, you know, gets to that point where the taxes go up. Um, another tool 
we're working on and we have, you know, we can't push it out there completely is creating a freeze in particular areas. If you go and apply to create a tax incremental financing zone, you can actually freeze the taxes for a period of time if you can negotiate that with the city. And that's usually one of the goals for an area that you're trying to revitalize because you don't want the people who already own homes there or rent there to suffer. So you want them to have some type of freeze over you know, a five to 10 year period so that while that neighborhood is growing, you're not displacing displacing those folks and creating, you know, speculative opportunities for other people. Um, I've also, again, going back to one of the solutions um, Heather Way mentioned, you know, community land trust can be one of those solutions. If you have neighborhood groups, if you have neighborhood nonprofits that can go ahead and buy some of that land if they want to keep a certain percentage of that land within that neighborhood, they can do that. Those are some of those particular tools. Market-wise, you can't stop the market from being the market, but you can put things in place that make sure that it stays incremental and then encouraging other small developers immediately to start. You know, we like to focus on new construction, other folks like rehab. So we're trying to usher in other folks to start doing the work alongside us. And that's what helps prevent that. Daniel is asking a question about opportunity zones. And I don't know how much you've had to, how much you've worked with opportunity zones or how much you know about them or have interacted with them. Um, his question is, it, Opportunity zones it seems to be seem to be targeting the type of neighborhoods that would benefit from small scale development. Do you think this is a positive or a negative in terms of your work? And I guess I have that same question too. I I, I have deep concerns about them. Our mutual friend John Anderson has argued with me that they're they're great. Derek, I, I'm I'm interested in what you're thinking about opportunity zones. I was waiting for that question. Oh, okay, great. I love it. I love it. Because here, here's the thing. Oper the original design of the Opportunity Zones will create massive gentrification and massive redlining. Because the deal is you're, you're bringing in investment into areas that have been neglected, that needed investment, but you're using it as a, you're using a tax write-off to get people to invest in an area they don't care there's no care into that into that neighborhood so my thing is for us we try we want to use it strategically and but there are no safeguards that other people will so we appreciate the opportunity zones for highlighting this and making this you know obviously somewhere people will want to invest that part's positive What's negative is what we know will happen to neighborhoods. If you don't have people there fighting to revitalize without gentrifying those neighborhoods, the opportunity zones are just going to be massive money dumps of people gentrifying neighborhoods and displacing people, you know, like crazy. The, the, what you really want is if you see an area that's identified as an opportunity zone, you need to get the incremental developers there now doing projects and controlling those areas. Because otherwise, if you don't have an organized, you know, group of developers or an organized or the city understanding what's ha what's going to happen, then you're just, you're going to get the investment. People are excited about opportunity, opportunity zones. They're very excited. So investment is going to come. However, the control of how it's going to be administered is where I have major, major concerns. And I'll be perfectly honest with the people who created the whole Opportunity Zone thing, I don't see it as being something that's going to be positive for the people who are already there because they don't understand the intimate details of how to revitalize a neighborhood properly. So it's again, a top down approach that's going to create, okay, cool. We'll make another uptown, a cool enclave 
in the middle of the city and then push everyone out to the suburbs that can't afford to stay there. And now they're disconnected from, you know, services and jobs. In this national conversation we're having about race and equity and, and, and you know, historical uh, uh, wrongs, you've been one of these people who has said, like, I, I want to talk about this. I, 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 I don't think we should have this as a passive part of our conversation. I think we should talk about this. Right. I, I'm interested in your take on your work as it relates to uh, what you think our, our nation's racial conversation is. How, how, how do these two things go together and how should people be looking at your work uh, through, a, through a lens of, of empowerment? Absolutely. I'm a black developer. You don't see that very often. That, that's, that's first. Um, and a lot of times black people or people of color don't think that this is a field that they can get into. And so for us, we like to make sure that we're an inspiration for all types of people getting into development because really what it comes down to is it's a local thing. People in neighborhoods should be developers. So race is something that I love talking about because I love seeing people get uncomfortable. Even you, I like seeing you uncomfortable. I'm glad you wrote that <laughs> post about it <laughs> because I know you avoided it. And I think that we need to have those discussions because I think we, we pushed it under, under a rug and we pretended after the civil rights movement, we pretended that we were all cool, but if you really pay attention, we didn't deal with it. We, we just avoided it. We say, we don't talk about that. You know, yes, everyone's equal. We're colorblind. There's no way you can be colorblind. You can see me, I'm black. Okay, so saying someone is colorblind, I get that you're not judging me by my skin color, but you're also erasing my experiences because of my skin color because there are some things that happen to me that don't happen to other people and so i think that once people start understanding things like implicit bias and if you don't know what that means please go google implicit bias and start educating yourself on that because we don't teach those things in school and we have to be able to get along we have to be able to coexist so that we can start building strong towns because most of these towns are made up of a diverse group of people. So for me, if, if I'm ignorant to one race or ethnicity, then I really need to learn more about them and understand and believe them when they say that something happens. Because just because it doesn't happen to you doesn't mean it doesn't happen to me. And so I think that the more experiences we all have, and the more we listen to each other, then we can actually, you know, start working on having an equitable society because we're not making assumptions based on what we see on television. We're actually forming genuine relationships. And I think that getting down to relationships, that's where we can start having those real conversations and understanding that, okay, I might experience something completely different from each other but my experience is valuable as is yours. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can talk about race for, a, a, you know, quite a while, but that, you know, I can stop there. But it, it's, when it comes to development, we have to talk about it because when you start talking about gentrification, race is going to come up. Right. And if you're not educated on those things, if you're going in with your implicit bias, then you're not going to be successful. You're going to not endear yourself to the community and you're going to wonder why no one wants to work with you. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to put this on you because I don't think this is your responsibility. Um, sure. But I want to ask you this question. How, how do you think your work is helping? Uh, and, and, and the work that you do is, is helping uh, Im improve our racial understanding in this country. Cause I, cause I feel like it is, but I, I'd, I'd like, I'd like to hear why you think it is. Okay. I think representation matters. You'll hear folks say that a lot. Me growing up, I wouldn't be here if I didn't see a black man as a developer because I wouldn't have known that that was a possibility for me. Also, 
other people seeing him because he had people of all races that worked for him. You know, a young white kid saw him as a black developer. So with that being said, it wasn't weird. You know, we wanted to be the norm that you see anyone can be in any field. So I think that with our work, it's dispelling rumors that, you know, you have to be wealthy or you have to be in some club to be able to get into this field. It doesn't matter, you know, because I saw someone that looked like me that was a developer and then other people saw people that looked like me. Because there are kids that don't look like me that go to my kid's school and they say, oh, okay, there's those developers. Right. And people may not think much of it, but then when they get grown, they won't have that implicit bias that, oh, you know, that black guy can't be a developer. Why right. not? You know, I saw one when I was growing up. So for us, I think that's part of it. And then just empowering communities and seeing people from neighborhoods that are similar. You know, it, it's it it's very um, inspiring to some to some folks, you know, no matter what they look like to see folks that look like us doing that. And so now we get respect from one end of the spectrum and then even from the other, it's like, okay, well, they must know what they're doing. It, it does feel like to me, and, and again, I don't want to, there's the, I'll go back to the Greenwood neighborhood you brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. There's a certain, um, I'm going to put this in my terms and I welcome you to put it in your terms. There's a sure. certain wealth, wealth is power kind of aspect to, uh, to incremental development in a neighborhood. And when we, when we kind of denude and, and rob of investment and wealth a neighborhood, we disenfranchise people. And when we put wealth and love into a neighborhood, uh, we can't help but make those people more powerful and, 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 and magnify their voice. Right. That's my take. I don't know if that's your take, but I, I feel like it, it's, it's, a, it's a truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you have a neighborhood that's been disinvested, that's when you start seeing the political apathy. You start seeing people withdraw from from society because they're like, well, you know, I don't have any power anyway. And if you are actively involved in building or helping people build, become part of that neighborhood, because I think this is all community. I think development is all about everyone that's a part of it because there are so many moving parts to it so i think that when people see that they can take control of their own ability to build wealth then they start doing it but then of course if you start building your own wealth you start engaging more and again that's what creates that power yes the financial success is helpful because now you can buy back your time so that you have more time to be involved because you're physically invested in the neighborhood. It takes away some of the apathy there. So then of course you start getting better voter turnout. You start getting better candidates that you can hold accountable to areas. So yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Derek Avery, we're out of time. Um, I want to thank, I mean, you, you have been generous with me in, in many, many ways. And I just want to thank you for that. Both generous in your time and also in your, your spirit. Um, you know, keep making me uncomfortable. Uh, keep pushing me a little bit. I, I, I value you a lot and, and appreciate that part of our relationship too. And uh, just to have someone like, uh, you know, of your background and your skills and your capacity as part of the Strong Towns conversation, uh, means a lot to me. And so I just want to thank you on behalf of everybody for taking the time to answer our questions and be our expert here on incremental development. Thank you, Derek Avery. Thank you so much. And I appreciate being a part of it. And if there are other questions we didn't get to, tell them to email them to me and I'll be, I'd love to answer those um, individually. But I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, Derek's at Core Holdings. It's C-O-I-R Holdings.com. And I know you're on Twitter because we, we interact on Twitter every now and then. Uh, that's at Derek Avery. Is that right? At Derek Avery 1. Derek Avery 1, the, the one and only. All right. <laughs> 
thank you, Derek. And thanks everybody who, uh, who hung out with us today. Uh, go be that incremental developer in your neighborhood. You, you, you can do it. You have the capacity to do it. And uh, if you need a network of people, Derek is here. The Inter Incremental Development Alliance is here. Uh, these people are, are, want to help you be successful at this. And, and we need you to be successful at this. So if this inspires you, go forth and, and be great. Thank you for listening and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, Derek. All right. Take care, Chuck. Thanks so much. Bye, everybody. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.